Hello and welcome to this King Hero interview. My name is Beth Martins. I'll be your host. And I have the great pleasure of talking with Tim Moan today, who is the leader of the Libertarian Party of Canada, as well as a fireman and paramedic. And before we get started, I'll just tell you a little bit about what the King Hero series is, is really about. It's about supporting strong men to get stronger, to show examples of strong men who are out there in leadership roles, speaking their truth, sometimes saying the thing that people actually don't want to hear that doesn't make them popular, and seeing that our generations as they come up underneath us have a foundation for a strong, powerful society that ultimately people can walk in freedom compared to what we're really experiencing right now. And so Tim, welcome to the King Hero podcast. Well, thanks for having me. And thanks for even considering me for this podcast. Uh, you know, I consider it a fantastic honor uh, to, be, to be considered to be interviewed here. And I think it's great um, to see uh, women kind of uh, step up and encourage us to embrace our masculine self rather than uh, damp it down, consider it toxic and, and um, try to make us into, uh, you know, a, a feminized version of a man or something like that. So it's fantastic. Men need this. And, and so thank you for the work you're doing here. Uh, I really appreciate hearing that. And I love getting that response for, for my whole life. I was in opposition to men, you know, by my own choice, my own disposition. And, uh, and now it's such a pleasure not to feel that at all. And it's, it doesn't put blinders on my eyes, but it doesn't make me stop seeing or anything like that. But I, uh, I enjoy this much more because I never feel like I'm in competition with a man or opposition anymore. So that's right, really right. A, a pleasure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they really are collaborative energies. Um, you know, they're not oppositional energies. They work great when they are synthesized and when they're, they're collaborative. And uh, so that's great. Beautiful. So I'm interested in both tracks of your career. How did you end up getting involved in the Libertarian Party? What was the genesis of that? What were the turning points for you that led to it? Yeah, well, I mean, for years, I, you know, I, I kind of grew up in a, a fundamentalist Christian uh, faith. And, you know, I went through a period in my life where um, I, I started to question all the stories I'd been told, you know, I was going through a divorce. And, I, I had always been told and believed that that meant for sure I was going to hell. And I, my whole life had been spent avoiding hell and trying to do the right thing. Um, and I started to wonder, well, is that really true? Is, is, there, is there a way I can get out of going to hell? I mean, I can't stay in this marriage. You know, there's infidelity. There's all these other things going on. And I just can't, I can't stay in this place. Um, but I felt like I was going to hell. So I just started reading and it started uh, challenging the narrative I'd been told. And, you know, the, the epiphany for me was, and this sounds really simple. Um, and and I've, I've, I'm almost embarrassed that I it, it hadn't realized this in the past, but I real, had an epiphany. I realized that had I been born in any other part of the world, I would have a completely different worldview, a different perspective. Had I had grown up in, in the Middle East, I, I would have a different worldview. Um, you know, I could probably just say, I, I divorce you three times and it would be done and it would be fine. Or if I'd been, you know, grown up in China or, or any other part of the world, I'd have a completely different worldview. And that was very unsettling for me because it made me realize that, you know, I felt like I was a fairly smart guy. I was rational. I, I was scientific and, you know, I, 
was, you know, relatively smart. And um, it was very disconcerting to realize that everything in my brain had been put there by my society, by my culture, um, that I hadn't thought of any of these things myself, that it's no coincidence that I believed exactly the same things as my family, as my church, as my neighbors, as my broader community and nation. And, and so it basically, that was kind of my red pill moment. It was like everything fell away. And, I, and it was a very discombobulating time in my life. Like I, I didn't know where my moral center was anymore or anything like that. Um, and, and, and it wasn't just the, the religious stories I'd been told. It was also the political stories that I was told as well. And so I, uh, I realized that everything I believed about government, about the nature of society, Again, that was just another story I was told, and I needed to examine that through first principles and through rational, a rational lens. So that led me to, you know, the philosophy of liberty and understanding it. And, you know, to me, libertarianism is kind of like, a, it's almost like an attitudinal disposition of skepticism towards all these stories that were told about when it's morally justified to use force and that sort of thing. Well, I can't steal, I can't... Um, I can't rob from you. I'd be rightfully thrown in jail or something like that. But if I call myself the prime minister and everyone recognizes me as prime minister, I can do those things. And we just call it taxation or something like that. So you're very able, clearly able to see the matrix of propaganda and language around you. So to me, that's kind of what libertarianism is. It's not really a positive belief system so much as it is um, a, a tool to see through the propaganda and matrix that's kind of around us. So that I, I entered into the, the libertarian uh, kind of chat rooms and forays and podcasts. And, and very quickly I said, okay, you know what? I got to run for, for office and I got to change things. I mean, this is amazing. As soon as people hear this, you know, the scales will fall from their eyes and you know, the, I'll set the world free. And really this is kind of what my mom had been, been preparing me for my whole life like you know I was supposed to be this preacher of the gospel or something like that well this is my version of preaching the gospel now uh, but very quickly you know <laughs> I had all these kind of anarchists and libertarians tell me well, you're going to run for office you think that's going to change the world that's you're stupid right and yeah they, they were right like voting and political action isn't what changed my heart and my mind and and had me unplugged from the matrix it was um it was ideas and people communicating those ideas in an understandable and powerful way that helped me. So I was very much against politics for a long time. And I, I thought, in fact, that engaging in politics is, is supporting the matrix. It's like you're contributing to blinding people and you're, you're contributing to reinforcing this, um, this evil system that we have. And so I was very opposed to it for a long time. Um, but what happened was, uh, you know, I, I had done some work with uh, Neil Young and Daryl Hannah because, uh, you know, as a firefighter, we all have kind of a side hustle. And my side hustle was uh, I did film, uh, film work and, and production work. And so I made it my goal uh, because I lived in Fort McMurray at the time. And it, it was kind of a geopolitical hotspot where all the environmentalists were coming up to, to uh, slag the oil sands because Keystone XL pipeline. Anyways, we had a, a, this steady stream of environmentalists coming up to paint the ugliest picture of our community and of our industry up there. And I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm going to make it my goal to get in on all these 
productions, offer my services for free. I'll, I'll do whatever they want me to do, but I'll also offer them a different narrative and encourage them to point their cameras at different things and throw a little bit of cognitive dissonance their way. Just challenge that, that dogma that they're coming up to Fort McMurray. So that gave me the opportunity to work with Neil Young and Daryl Hannah. And, uh, you know, Neil, Neil didn't want to shoot any of the things I suggested. We, had, we actually had a, uh, an eco-powered carnival in town at the time he was filming called Sustainable, and it ran off used cooking oil from the town's restaurants, and it had a solar-powered stage. You know, it, exa everything that Neil claims to be in favor of, right? And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to get Neil Young singing a song on this solar powered stage powered by sunlight with, you know, this dirty industry in the backdrop. And, you know, as an artist, I thought it was interesting. Here's where we're at. Here's where we're going. And look at the kind of consciousness that emerges from this bad environment, so-called, right? Uh, but of course, Neil was just there to, to sell his propaganda. I wrote an article about that because he went to Washington, D.C. Uh, the week after we'd finished filming. And he, he said that Fort McMurray was committing genocide on the natives and that, that we looked like Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Like he just, it, it made me angry. So I wrote an article um, about this, just kind of outlining Neil's hypocrisy, you know, saying, look, he, he has this son that he he's following him around on these diesel burning buses, but as a nurse 24 seven, his son has cerebral palsy or no cystic fibrosis was given a life expectancy of about 18 years. And he, here he is 36. And because of a chain of events that you can trace all the way back to the dirty smokestacks of the industrial revolution, Neil is able to earn this, this living making noise um, and selling records rather than plowing a field from before dusk till after dawn and is able to provide all these resources for his son. And by the way, able to advanced technology um, by, you know, he was working on this uh, link volt. It was a special hybrid powered vehicle that he had made. He spent a lot of money and resources, like over a million dollars creating this thing and to drive it all around North America to show that we can move to a cleaner energy source. And I thought, great, this is, this is exactly what the community of Fort McMurray exemplifies, exactly what Neil Young's doing, right? He, okay, he's got a big carbon footprint, but he's moving things in the right direction by putting his actions where his values are. And that, that was exactly what I've seen emerge in Fort McMurray, All, a huge environmental consciousness up there that you would never expect. And you would never get that story from the mainstream media or anything like that. Uh, so, so I just highlighted how Neil was, was undercutting the very thing that was actually keeping his son alive and all the hypocrisy. And there was a lot of libertarian themes in that article. Um, and uh, some Libertarian Party folks noticed it, and they started recruiting me, and I pushed back hard. I said, no, thank you. I'll, in fact, I had written a blog post uh, a few months earlier about how voting is probably immoral and political action is evil. And I, I referred them to that <laughs> article, and uh, I said, thank you very much. And But they just kept kind of being persistent. They said, you know, you're a great communicator. You're a great voice for these ideas, and, you know, you can't tell me, Tim, that Ron Paul – uh, didn't make a big difference when he ran uh, for president in the U.S. I mean, I couldn't deny that. I mean, here Ron Paul was communicating a message that I thought was beautiful to millions of people. Um, and yes, of course, that, that to me was exactly how government is, changes, right? It's downstream from culture. And so if you want the government to change, you know, you have to get this message out to people. And I'm, I'm kind of being dogmatic by saying, 
I, I should never stand on that stage and communicate this message. So, so I took them up on it. Finally, I, I, they wore me down and I saw the, I saw the rationality that I couldn't argue against Ron Paul. And two days after I made the commitment to run in 2015, my uh, member of parliament resigned. I was thrown into a, um, a by-election and uh, you know, this was a year and a half. I thought I'd have a year and a half to prepare to run for parliament, but I, I was thrown right in and we just threw everything at the wall. I assembled a team from across Canada and uh, you know, the one slogan or meme, I guess that stuck was, I want gay married couples to be able to protect their marijuana plants with guns. And that one went viral. It went around the world um, and it got so picked good. up. You know, I, I got on Fox news. I got on CNN. I, this hour is 22 minutes made fun of me and kind of rating, riding that wave of uh, visibility, I guess I was nominated to be party leader because we just happened to be having our convention uh, two months after that. And, you know, I, I won party leadership. So I went, you know, in a period of six months from saying voting is immoral to say vote for me for prime minister. Uh, so it was, it was an interesting uh, period. So that's how I got involved in libertarian, uh, to, to be the leader of the libertarian party uh, of Canada. You know, I've always kind of seen it not as elect me and I'll set you free, but more as here's an opportunity for me and, and people that are similar minded, because I can't do this alone. We have candidates across the country and we have all sorts of infrastructure and people supporting those candidates as a team. Can we effectively as an organization get this message out to more and more people and shift hearts and minds and, uh, you know, eventually influence and shift culture. And so that's kind of the, the tact we've taken. And, um, you know, it's been, it's been a roller coaster. It's been fun. <laughs> what a great story. I really love that. Uh, I'd love to go back to a point at, uh, near the, the beginning of it that you talked about how it, it should be so obvious that our perception, our worldview, our beliefs aren't our own, right? And that's, to right. me, such an incredibly powerful moment. And it's humbling, right? Because you think, oh my God, yeah. how did I not see this? And yeah. that's- It's humbling to the point of embarrassment, to be honest, because it's yeah. such a simple thing to recognize and yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I just want to share with the audience too, because if you know, if you, maybe you're in the process of that, and uh, just to cut yourself some slack, because yeah. you know, a person like yourself, very knowledgeable and, and very open in the world. For me, it was several stages of that. I studied anthropology. So I, I went cross culturally and, and right away saw that people don't feel and believe the same way. I studied uh, in India, in Nepal, and I and I saw how they don't stress about the same things. They don't have the same mm. emotions, right? You right. think emotions are, are are really a universal universal thing. I think there are universal seeds, but what gets expressed is really determined. And then and then my whole disposition mm. as a feminist was I I really owned that, like I created that movement or something like that. And in the end, I just saw how many manufactured ideas I had internalized, and then taken ownership really? of yeah and it was yeah just like, and, wow, and you know just ju just to add to that you know i i did a podcast i, I have a podcast called the liberty experts um, and I, I do it with a, a partner david um who who's a guy that actually approached me to start doing this and i, I said sure Awesome. And he, uh, you know, we've been doing this for about six or seven months. And, uh, you know, I learned for the first time in this podcast, we were kind of talking about transgenderism. And he, he revealed publicly and courageously, I thought, that he actually struggled with gender dysphoria for a period of time. And he said it was because of the culture and, and the group that he was running with. 
You know, he, he kind of had some feminine traits that we would think of as, as stereotypically feminine, right? Like he was cared about nurturing and sharing and like, you know, just different things that a hyper-masculine male probably wouldn't be in his, his uh, vision of focus or whatever. And so he started thinking, well, maybe I'm not really a man. Maybe I am a, maybe I'm actually a, a female trapped in a man's body or something like that. I mean, this is what the community, the progressive kind of LGBTQ community around me is telling me. This is what everyone else seems to be doing. And maybe that's what I need to do to express myself and, and feel like I'm properly in my skin. And, and then of course he realized, and, and he, he had had a lot of depression leading up to that. And so he was very easily influenced, I think, by the culture around him. And he pretty soon he realized that, you know, really it was the depression and his seeking of acceptance and connection with community that was kind of making him very receptive to all these ideas about how he should be. And so he realized his narrative was completely being controlled around him by the culture he was in to the point where he was thinking about mutilating his genitalia. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, the ideas are powerful and you know, the, the, where they come from and how they spread and how we, sift through these ideas and how we process them all these things are are um super important and and kind of what drive me forward i think mm -hmm, mm -hmm, exactly yeah it's such a, a really powerful point uh i, I want to talk more about the gender thing because that's really on my radar and important to me to to get a message out about and be a an unpopular voice hmm. and uh that whole internal workings of the the consciousness, the self-consciousness. And I just had an epiphany right live time on this interview. So I have to share this is that I think it's a must for us to harmonize with our environment in whatever way. So I use an example of, um, you know, I'm very auditory and I can tune in very, at very subtle levels and get a lot of information through sound. And so when there are, um, you know, like annoying sounds or, or um, interruptive sounds or that kind of thing. They can be like maybe more annoying to me than the average person or the, I just maybe more annoyed <laughs> than the average <Right>. person. <laughs> and so I, I finally discovered, and it was actually when I was sick with cancer because there were so many times where I was at the mercy of sounds I couldn't, I couldn't control, I couldn't turn them off and I, and I couldn't do anything with them. So I learned to harmonize with them mm. and as a, as a singer as well. I would literally find the tone or find a tone within the, the mess of the sound that I was hearing. And I could sing along with it, basically treat it to be like a bass note or a drone or a something going on. And then I would, hmm. I would create with it and it would go from being something that really disturbed me to, to something. I would be quite happy because it, it, anyone in their creative place tends to have a, a bliss about them. And so it was, it was, you know, I could take the, the annoying lawnmowers and then I'd be singing along. And then all of a sudden I'm, I'm sad when the lawnmowers stop because I don't have anything to sing along with anymore. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I, th and, I think that's a great perspective. Yeah. Sorry. Thank you. That's okay. So just to tie it in with why do we internalize to the point of mutilating ourselves? Why hmm. would we internalize? It's, is I think that there's that need to harmonize with the people that we're spending our time with. Like they always say right. your income is going to be an average of the, the five people you spend your time, most of your time with. And, yeah. and I think that's, that's just how, that's how we end up taking ownership of something because otherwise it feels like it's intruding on us or, and you know, um, just coming at us or attacking us, opposing yes. us. 
No, that you, hundred percent. Um, you know, your the environment you it, it does play a huge role in your development as a person and your character development and and who you are and you know the beautiful thing is that we can choose our environment though right we have f- free will and so you know a, a big thing i realized over time is um that i need to select my environment there's a great book called uh, biology of belief by bruce lipton who talks about how um you know cell membranes and and the, the environment that they're exposed to are really what drive um that's really the brains of the cell. That is what leads to genetic or epigenetic expression. And you can literally change your biology by changing the environment. And that change of your environment starts with what thoughts you hold in your head, your beliefs. And and so um, having the correct beliefs about the world um, help you choose the best environments and, and ultimately have a biological effect on you. I mean, it's not just... Um, it's not just making more money or, or, you know, having some kind of superficial success. It literally changes you almost at a biological level or it can. I totally subscribe to that. And it's funny. I just, I just tripped on the biology of belief uh, the other day. So that's a great, a great coincidence. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So is, first of all, do you find leadership stressful? Does it, is it something that, challenges you and brings up intensity in your life or yeah i mean you know i guess leadership in the informal sense probably no it it doesn't stress me out it stresses me out in a different way you know when i'm when i am an informal leader or people look up to me or rely on me uh because of you know, because I, I'm authority, because I, I have uh, maybe some subject matter expertise or some experience or some wisdom, you know, my, my kids look up to me and ask me for advice. When I, the stress that emerges in that environment is, am I living up to my own standards here? Am I the best version of myself? Um, this, the stress that comes from a formal leadership role, like leader of the Libertarian Party of Canada, is you have people constantly backstabbing you, trying to undermine you, get your position, uh, diminish you. Uh, you. Then you have your political opponents on the outside constantly bashing you. And that that is a different kind of stress. And and people, you know, even, uh, you know, this last year was, was just a low point um, for me in terms of the party because, uh, you know, I, I had a lot of people that supported me, people that I felt like were my brothers, right? That, that we're, we're a band of brothers and we're doing this very difficult thing together, uh, left me to go support Maxime Bernier. Um, and, <laughs> you know, it's hard not to feel betrayed and stressed mm-hmm. about, okay, well, what am I doing here? What's my role? Am I, is there any purpose for me here? Should I be moving on or different things like that? So, mm-hmm. so there's all sorts of stresses like that. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for sure that go on and they're a little bit different depending whether that that role is formal or uh, informal I guess. Very good I want to ask you a question about that but also just to point out um, I'm sorry for the betrayal by the way that's very painful to go through and uh, and it's yeah, the epitome. And you, yeah. mm-hmm. Well I was, I was going to say you know that that story of betrayal is also uh, the thing I, that is helpful about these stressful situations and that in the way they help you grow is that you realize that most of that is the story in your own head. It's not what they 
doing to you. It's not that they did anything to me. They were simply attracted to something else. Uh, you know, I wasn't entitled to their support in any way. Um, and so the story of betrayal is what's really causing me the stress and working through that. So I don't shirk from stress because stress has always been the thing that has caused the most growth and made me more mentally healthy. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it can be distress or use stress, right? Depending on your mental frame as those triggers come up, I guess. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Uh, the domain, since I, I work with archetypes, I'm always hearing that language and listening for it. And the domain archetype is the child, actually, and specifically the nature child, whose primary shadow is betrayal. And, and you actually spoke the exact script of it, that it made you feel lost. It made you um, question purpose and go back mm -hmm. to, okay, what, you know, what am I doing here? What's the, what's the point of all of this? And uh, so it's just beautifully consistent. I love hearing when, you know, the, the experience of betrayal comes up. It's, it always brings you back to that, okay, you know, what is the next leg of my journey look like? Yeah. So that's very cool. And then how do you manage the stress? How do you handle it? Or do you have any techniques and tips and tools that you turn to or relationships? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I find that it all starts with how I wake up in the morning. I mean, how I wake up in the morning is almost the most important thing uh, there is. You know, I, there's two ways you can, I can wake up. One is I roll over, I grab my phone and I look at all the notifications. I see what's on Facebook. I get pissed off about something. I see some negative comments people are saying. I see people posting how great Maxine Bernier is and it triggers me. That's one way of waking up and things don't go great for me uh, on those days. Uh, yeah. But on the, the days that things go great for me is uh, when I, I don't look at that phone where I put both feet on the ground and you know, I, I step into the shower and I kind of have a mental routine almost, uh, you know, I, I do an attitude of gratitude thing. You know, I think mm -hmm. about all the things that are, I'm grateful for in my life, all the positive things. And, um, and it doesn't take much like just a minute or two. And, and then I turn the shower on to cold and, uh, and, uh, it energizes me. Like I can barely stand, I, I stay in there till I can barely stand it. And, and I come out of there just kind of feeling energized wow. and ready to go. And then that, that sets me up for success. I find because now I have all this energy. I have a positive mental frame because I, I have um, an attitude of gratitude. And it's something I learned in my grad studies. I, I, I did a, a graduate degree in leadership and, and uh, you know, I, I learned that the brain changes and it's well-researched, the having gratitude is actually a very well-researched field. And, and it's funny because it's, it, you know, this scientific grad study took me back to my religious roots where we learned that the first thing you do when you pray is you give thanks, right? You don't ask for things. You don't whine or complain to God. You give mm. thanks about all the things that you're grateful for in your life. So there's something about religion that works and that there's a, a objective scientific reason why it works. It just took me a long circuitous route to kind of realize that. But so anyways, I practice this thing and, the, and it does help me uh, deal with stress. And, and the other thing I've learned too is, you know, a lot of times as men, we're taught to um, that, that our feelings are bad, especially negative feelings like frustration, ang anger, um, annoyance, all these things. And I, I, I will still feel those throughout the day when I read something or something triggers me. 
And what I learned is those aren't bad. Those aren't something to be repressed. They're not something to be pushed down and tamped down on. They are something to learn from. They're something to get curious about. Okay, I'm angry. Why am I angry? It's not about what this thing is I just read. There's a story in my head. There's an unmet need in me right now. And I need to drill down into that. And you almost always come up with gold when you do that. Because it's not readily apparent. Um, But, you know, so, so that was, that was, you know, uh, that has been a big epiphany for me as well in my life is, is to realize, because again, as men, we're, we're told that, that to tamp down our anger, like we were always told to like, you know, to, to just repress all that stuff, bottle it up. And then Mm -hmm. you never deal with any of the stuff that, that is the root cause of it. Um, Mm -hmm. And it all has to do with your, your own story in your head. And so once you recognize that, you know, the anger goes away, but also you learn something about yourself. And so that's kind of how I, I deal with it. And, and some days are tougher than others, but um, you know, it's not easy. This is, you know, I didn't ask for an easy life. I asked for a meaningful one and, and that's what I've gotten. <laughs> Very good. Oh my God. So many parallels uh, between us in that you're speaking right now. It's, it's a beautiful thing that it's such a king hero thing that they can get so far. And I think there comes a point in that king stage of the hero's journey where you really are invited. There's, there's two paths you can go on. And one of them is going to be deeply conscious and the other is going to be deeply unconscious. Mm. And, you know, the, the deep unconscious is, is there and it's magnetic because doing the conscious route is everything that you're talking about that you, that you can't just repress the strong emotions that are being evoked from your position. You actually have to go through them. You have to do healing work. You have to um, know thyself, right? That just, I was just listening to Crow Triple Seven and they were reminding me about why that is so incredibly important, even though it's like my motto. Um, and, and that's what turns you into a truly benevolent leader is the willingness to do that work and, uh, and sift through who, who you actually are. Because when you put yourself into leadership, you get nothing but people's projections on you. Yes. And that's intense. Like I always yeah. say that, that the, you know, the, the perks of, of a leadership role, maybe, maybe it's wealth, maybe it's influence, maybe it's, um, people look up to you. All of that is so necessary because of the cost of the projections that you're constantly dealing with that. You know, every time I've right. moved to a new level in my life, I invite a whole new level of people that uh, oppose me. Luckily, it's not so severe. It's usually like one or two dramatic incidents. When it happens in my clients' lives, I always cheer because it's really a sign that they've stepped into leadership, mm. that they're, they're getting attacked. Yeah, no, you're at, you're absolutely right. And and it's not just the attacks too, you know, equally, you know, tempting, I guess, shall I say, is all the praise you get uh-huh. and people and people projecting that onto you as well. You know, especially as a politician, because people are trained to look at you as the answer to their woes, right? And so they're constantly asking you, what are you going to do for me? How are you going to save me? And, and then there's some people that like, yes, uh, you know, you're the answer to all my prayers. And this is, you know, this is going to be so good. If you just take, take control of these things, you know, my life will be so much better. And that, that is almost even more concerning to me because you know, that that's not, that, you know, that, that's not what, first of all, 
it's not good for you, the person who's saying that. Uh, I, I want you to have skin in the game. I want you to have personal power yourself. I want you to be able to be the king of your own life. I don't want you to have you relying on me. Uh, but secondly, there's this niggling temptation of, because it feels really good to be praised, to become that person that they want you to be. And to be that, you know, uh, hero that's going to save them or something like that. Um, it, rather than to teach them or, or help them save themselves, I guess. And, you know, that's one of the reasons actually I wear, I wear a replica of the, the ring of power as my wedding ring. Um, because, you know, the, the, I love the Lord of the Rings analogy of, of how having a little bit of power corrupts. And I, I can see exactly how it corrupts now that I've been immersed in this. And I've, you know, I've probably been corrupted to some degree. I've had to check myself a few times because you'll, you'll go into a particular forum and you'll have a strong message and you'll just be tempted to tailor it a little bit so that, or soften the, the message a little bit so that um, people will like you more or something like that. And that is how the corruption starts. That's the seed of corruption. And then pretty soon. And so I can see exactly how the most successful politicians are kind of these vacuous sociopaths who are essentially caricatures of, who the people want them to be. Uh, and, and there's no, there's no there there. Like they, they, they have no soul almost. They're, they're not individuals. They're some kind of, um, yeah, they're just a character or cartoon figure. And um, I can see exactly how that happens. So that's another aspect I think uh, of, of leadership that you have to be wary of yet. You have to be, you know, you have, kind of have to keep yourself grounded and, on mission, I guess, you know, keep, keep your eye on what you're there for. Are you there to get praise? Are you there to um, get ego, ego boosts? Are you there to get clicks? Or are you there to make an impact and help people change their lives and do things together that are amazing? And, um, you know, that, that's, I think it's important to come back to that touchstone all the time. So powerful. That's amazing. There was a, another point of awakening that I, uh, you know, I used to think that all of the wrongs in the world were due to men, actually, due to you know, the patriarchal model, and that uh, you know, if there's wars and famines and people starving, that it was a result of um, men's decisions. And now I'm so clear it's actually a result of psychopathic uh, thinking and psychopaths' decisions. And it's the path that you're talking about when, when you vacate your soul, that you, you say, okay, soul, we, we won't be working with you anymore. We're just going to vacate <laughs> and, uh, and be the thing that people want and feed the, the you know, you see, you see some of the people out there that they get so popular and then they were saying something meaningful at the beginning, but at the end, then right. they're saying everything just to keep their followers yes. happy. And they become vacuous. That's exactly the nature of it. The, the ultimate extreme is when, to me, when the soul dies, when, when you just become uh, uh, an empty, hungry ghost, hungry yeah. for power, hungry for, uh, unfortunately, suffering is what ends up, ends up feeding that vacuousness. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, wow, that's beautiful. And, and are there any things that you do to keep yourself accountable? Like, obviously, you sound very self-aware and you know, if somebody came along and just offered you this huge opportunity to take the Libertarian Party in a certain direction, and it meant millions of dollars mm -hmm. to you, like, you know, how do you, how do you hold on to your values and integrity? Do you have a system for that? Yeah. Or it's, yeah, 
you know, I, I think it's about having the right people in your life. And luckily, mm -hmm. I have a wife who calls my BS on a regular basis. <laughs> right and, on. and keeps that in check, right? You know, and it, I think it's important. Like, she's very supportive and behind me 100% on everything I do. Uh, but behind closed doors, she'll just ask simple questions. It, it's not even like, uh, it, it's just like, okay, why are you doing this? Or why are you getting stressed about this? Or what, what is your goal here? What is your purpose? Why is this important to you? Right? Just these mm. questions um, that keep me grounded in mission in purpose. Um, because it's like, yeah, you're right. Why, why am I here? And, and she's not even trying to impart anything to me or like, you know, but she's just like, she sees me suffering or she sees me uh, feeling good about something or deciding to go a certain route and being very gung ho about it. And she'll just ask some questions and those will clarify to me whether I'm, I'm doing it the right thing. Um, you know, thank God, for, <laughs> thank God for um, having those kind of partners uh, in your life. I, you know, I couldn't do it uh, for sure without, without that support. Mm, that's wonderful. Wow. I really love that. Um, you and I talked when we met about a moment in your life where there was a kind of, um, you know, a, a crash, which is not mm -hmm. me. You didn't get sick. You didn't um, fall apart. Your relationship didn't fall apart, but you had kind of a unique experience. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that and how it uh, changed your perception? Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, like you said, you know, you, your kind of awakening came in stages. Um, you know, I talked a little bit about how I, kind of had a, an epiphany that everything I believed about the world was just put there by culture. Um, but that, that didn't give me any answers. It told me, okay, everything I believed was suspect, but now what, now, which direction do I go? Where do I step? How do I? And um, so, you know, the next stage was figuring, okay, what, I, what should I do in the world? And, and really, you know, I'd been living essentially again, even after that point in my life where I realized that culture was there, the one thing I didn't maybe realize was that the path I was on was essentially laid out for me by everything else. I mean, I was just going through the motions of, okay, I got to go to, I got to graduate high school and then I got to uh, find a wife and then I got to, you know, find a career and, and I got to get promoted through that career and work my way up. And then I got to buy a bigger house and then I got to buy two cars and then I got to have the kids. And then, so all these things were just, I was just kind of following this path laid out there. And again, this was largely constructed by, it, it was, I wasn't in the driver's seat, really. I was just kind of following the path that was laid out. But what woke me up from that was, um, you know, as a firefighter paramedic, I, I was doing a, I was on a house fire call. I was a lieutenant and I was leading a team into this, uh, his basement fire and it was a hoarder's house. Uh, so, you know, you couldn't feel the floor, basically, it was just, it, it was a mess. And we're, we we're going through pitch dark, like thick black smoke. And you know, you couldn't see even with a flashlight, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face, it was that sure. thick, we probably had no business being in that mess. Um, and the heat, it was getting hotter and hotter as we were trying to make our way through and find the seat of the fire. And, um, and things were just getting getting hot and then our incident commander noticed something change on the outside noticed we were in danger and called for an immediate evacuation so um our so we evacuated or I, I had my team evacuate first and um i turned around to follow them and i lost the hand line what you do is you follow your hose line back out that's your way out 
And I lost that. And then I got tangled up in a bunch of stuff in this hoarder's house and I couldn't find the hose again. And I was kind of immobilized by this stuff. So I, and I, and my, our radios didn't work for some reason. Um, they, they were poor radios. They didn't work in basements. So I couldn't even call for help. And uh, it was just getting hotter and hotter. So in those moments, like I panicked, I realized I was going to die. It was going to be a horrible death. But the, the thing that was more concerning to me was all this regret just came flooding into me. The regret about what kind of father I was being to my kids, the regret about what kind of husband I was being, the regret about um, all the things I'd left undone in life, all, all the potential I had that was just wasted and that I, I wasn't doing. I mean, it, it was, it was like an incredibly powerful moment. I mean, right down into my nervous system. And uh, you know, obviously I made it out of that fire, but uh, that was a life-changing moment for me because I, I thought for sure, I knew in my, in my heart that I was going to die. And that was, that, that is a disruptive moment in someone's life. That knocked me right off that path. And so after that moment, I just said, okay, I, I'm living a purposeful life. I am in the driver's seat here. I'm dropping everything that doesn't provide meaning. Um, I'm not chasing money or career or all these other paths that I'm supposed to follow. I'm just going to chase what, what's meaningful to me. How can I show up and be the best father I can be? How can I uh, be the, the best husband I can be? How can I be um, the best communicator and, um, and role model and teacher I can be um, and best version of myself? And, and so that, that has kind of been my my that, that that was that was the turning point in my life i guess I, I wish it would have happened sooner i wish i would have uh <laughs> almost died a lot sooner than that um but it, it was almost like a baptism by fire you know it was like I, literally you know, I merged this thing and i came out something different born again in a ways so i'm grateful for that and you know i still have I don't want to call it PTSD because it's almost the opposite of that. It's like post-traumatic growth in, in that I will be in certain situations in, in, in my work or even in a training exercise where I'll be trapped or I'll be like, I'll have that feeling of being trapped and, or a certain amount of heat will bring me back to that moment where I was panicky and I was going to die. And the trick I've learned is that, uh, I reframe that. I'm like, okay, this is excitement I'm feeling in my body because that moment was the best day of my life. That is when everything good in my life started happening. And all of a sudden I kick into another gear and I'm, I'm able to kick ass on in that call on that environment, uh, perform at a higher level than I was performing before that trigger hit me. And so, you know, one of my big, um, I, I guess, areas of focus is on mental health in first responders because we're seeing suicides go up. We're seeing mental illness on the rise. At the same time, we're seeing more resources. At the same time, we're seeing um, uh, you know more mental health support, less acute calls. Like all, all the, the the direction should be going the other way if the current mental health model is correct. That our job is what's causing the mental health problems, and that all you need is therapy and support and to manage that. Well, it's, we're finding out that that's not it because we have less triggers at work 
and we have way more support in terms of mental health, and yet we see mental illness and suicides on the rise in first responders. And, um, you know, uh, so, so my, you know, I kind of have uh, it in my heart to <laughs> try to change that narrative, but that's a difficult one because you, you can't tell people that um, it's difficult to communicate it in a way that doesn't sound like you're the cause of your own mental health problems. I mean, that's literally the case for, for me. Like I, the story in my head was a cause of my mental health. And so those triggers that hit me on the one hand, if I believe the victim narrative, I can say, Oh, I'm oppressed. Like I've got this mental illness. Like I shouldn't be having these feelings and I need to go to a therapist and I could just freeze and paralyze and have to call for a rescue or like just shut down on that call by believing the victim narrative that I'm told by my industrial culture that says, these calls are mental health challenges and you're not supposed to, humans aren't supposed to go to these types of things and you're under all this risk and blah, blah, blah. Um, well, if I bought into that, yeah, I would be <laughs> having mental health challenges, but I buy into a different narrative. I embrace a different narrative, which is that this job and these stressful calls and these high, uh, high stress situations where life and death is literally on the line are going to make me a better version of myself. Every time I, I, and put in that situation. I come out of it a better version of myself. And that, that, that has been true for me ever since. So. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Just take that in. That's so powerful because there are so many ways to be a victim these days because it's, it's it literally institutionalized. They're, yes. they're encouraging you to have that disposition of the victim to be disempowered to say yeah. like, yeah, I don't have any responsibility here. That wasn't my fault, which is actually yeah. true. But uh, yeah, one of the true things in one sense, in one sense but uh, I subscribe to something that's the creator of a release process that I teach I'm certified in and it's a backbone of how I help clients get transformations from trauma. We should talk about this, by the way, that it might mm. have a really good impact on your intentions there. And the this is a technique it's not about it's not about the truth of it it's a technique and it's that i can look at something happen even if it's like oh someone just smashed into my car and by law clearly they are at fault but i can turn it around for myself because otherwise then i'm kind of a victim and that, that was out of, out of my control it just happened yeah. but i can turn it around with this technique and say oh i did it i did that right and someone go, well, no, he was drunk. That, that had nothing to do with you. And, but I'll still say, I did that. Right. And, the, and the reason I'll say I did it is so that I have that awareness that I'm in control of everything. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, there, there, was, there might have been something you could have done to avoid that. Knowing yeah. that there's drunk people around you, could you have acted a different way? That's not exactly. saying it's your fault, but that's saying it's opening up possibilities for you. It's making you, it, it's preparing you for a time in the future where something similar might happen and where now you're going to be a bit more vigilant and open to different choices um, to prevent Bingo. something like that from happening. Right. And you absolutely. That's, that, that's, you know, the idea of, of ownership or extreme ownership um, and understanding exactly. that, that, you know, because whether it's true or not that you were a victim and yet in one sense you were, but if you focus on that, it closes down other, all other possibilities. You are now vulnerable to that same thing in the future. What's to stop another drunk driver from killing you next time? Nothing. Mm -hmm. You will be mm -hmm. a victim, a dead victim. Okay. But because you yeah. embrace this other mindset, 
maybe your head's a little bit more on a swivel and you're going to avoid that situation in the future and you'll be alive to tell a story. So exactly. and, and you, yeah, you're exactly right. And you know, in, in my profession, when I first started in this field, um, I, I had a couple of old school mentors and you know, the first call I was on, one of the first calls was this old hermit's house burnt down to the ground and, you know, we we're putting water on it, just cooling it down. There was no way we could go into this house. It was just fully involved. And then at the end of the, once the fire was out, we noticed that there was, there was the body laying there. It was the old guy. Uh, and as the junior guy, it was my job to go in there and do the dirty work. I had to go clean him, get, pick him up and get him in a body bag and get him out of there. And so I went in there and I mean, it was a horrific scene, you know, all that was left was his skull. Uh, I mean, the only skin left on, like his limbs were burnt off, all four limbs. The only skin left on him was his buttocks, you know, his intestines, his chest, everything was just charred barbecue. And um, I actually had to pry him up off the ground because he was stuck down to the ground. And as I, as I rolled him over, the back of his skull caved out and his soupy brains fell out and I caught a whiff. And I, I had to go to the side and I was dry heaving for about two minutes trying to compose oh, myself. Man. And then I got, I got composed myself, went back there, got this guy in the body bag. Now, was I a victim? Yes. I guess you, in one sense, you could say like, no one should have to do that. I mean, you know, but this is what I signed up to do. You understand? I signed up to go into chaos and restore order. I wanted to be good at it. I wanted to master it. I wanted to get better at it. So, so on the way back to the station, um, you know, my, my mentor is like, uh, looks at me, he goes first crispy critter crit kid. And I kind of just involuntarily laughed. I just thought it was kind of shocking that he would be that irreverent in that moment. Right. And I'm like, Oh, geez. And I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, this is like one of my first calls. So yeah. And then, uh, and then he like doubled down on his shock value. And he's like, Hey fellas, any of you feel like barbecue ribs for lunch? And everyone starts laughing. And I was just like mortified and laughing. And like, I, I was like, what the hell's going on? Like, how is this appropriate? Or, yeah, you know, we got get back to the hall and the guy took me aside in private and he said, listen, he said, uh, that was a rough call. That that's a tough first call to go on. We like to mm-hmm. easy into these things. You were baptized by fire. Um, and your response retching, we've all been there, but you know, the good thing is you composed yourself and you got the job done. Okay. So I'm feeling good. And then he says, um, you know, we, we have this dark humor behind closed doors. That was very inappropriate in, in public, obviously, but this is how we deal with these calls. We, 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 um, if you take these calls too seriously, you'll burn out very quickly. What he taught me in that moment was. I need to develop like a clinical detachment on the call. And so I, you know, it's very difficult to do, for example, with kids where all you feel is empathy, right? But you, you don't want an empathetic surgeon. You don't want a surgeon that's flinching as he's about to cut you with the knife. You Mm. want him to look at you like almost like biological matter, like a problem to be solved because that's, what's going to save your life. So he taught me this mindset I need to have to be an effective, um, emergency responder and Mm -hmm. that first year was awesome because every call we were going out and it felt like we were fighting dragons and we were getting better at it and we welcomed it and we wanted more of it and it was like and we were high-fiving afterwards and like we're seeing horrific tragedy right like in one sense we're taught we should be feeling you know almost ashamed of how our reactions are 
but we were getting better and better at our job. And I, I was feeling amazing. And I, I was a kick-ass paramedic. Now, I went back to school for two years to get my advanced paramedic and I came back and we're operating in a different world now. I, I went to work for a very kind of progressive organization that was taking mental health very seriously now. Critical incident stress was a very, very big buzzword and they were making us do these mandatory stress debriefings after serious calls. So one of my first calls there was uh, a multi-vehicle pileup with multiple people dead, multiple red patients and yellow patients. And, and so very stressful. Our, our system was overwhelmed. We had to adapt, improvise, overcome. We dealt with this thing. And I thought we did a great job. And so on the way back, I'm feeling pumped about this. You know, I'm, and then we got the radio call that said mandatory debrief back at the station. I'm like, yes, we're all going to like kind of high five, talk about how we kicked ass, talk about how we can improve, tighten up our game for next time. And it's going to be great. Well, I walk into this room and I'm kind of energetic and smiling and I look around me and I, I suddenly feel like I'm in a funeral home or something. The facilitator is just very somber. Everyone's kind of got their heads down, totally different body language. I'm like, Oh shit, I've got the wrong mentality here. I shouldn't be like, I like people died. I should be focusing on that fact. There was families that are immersed in, in um, sorrow and, and tragedy right now. And I need to be focusing on that. And, you know, one tearful colleague after another told about, talked about how it negatively affected them. And it was very clear to me that I had to talk about how it negatively affected me. Oh, um, wow. And, and that is how, and, and then, you know, shortly after that, I developed PTSD. I had three kids die in the back of my ambulance and and, you know, th there was nothing I could do about it. But because of this mindset that I had now been clearly trained in of I'm a victim of I need to focus on all the things I can't control, all the tragedy, all the things that are outside my control. Um, <laughs> I, I was now hitting the bottle. I was having flashbacks. I couldn't look at my kids in the eyes. I had anxiety about going to work, like all, all the classic symptoms of PTSD. Wow. Luckily, my employer noticed this and sent me for therapy and it was one therapy session luckily I got a, gr a, a great therapist uh, it, it was one therapy session and one question that he asked in that therapy session that turned off all those symptoms for me and I, I remember it very clearly I was talking about how I had I couldn't save a life I wasn't I, I couldn't I wasn't providing any value on these calls like I was I, I need to quit this profession and the therapist stopped me he's like I, I just want to stop it Tim you know I want to understand this clearly because something you said doesn't sound right to me. So just answer this. Are you telling me seriously that you didn't provide any value on those calls? And I, that kind of put me back on my heels a little bit for a second. I had to think about it. I'm like, well, you know, all the parents, all three sets of parents hugged me afterwards and thanked me for what I did. What were they thanking me for? There was something of value I provided them, obviously. <laughs> Yeah. If I, if I were in their position, uh, would I want a paramedic, even knowing that my kid was destined to die, that there was nothing that a paramedic could do, would I still want a paramedic there? And what was it that he's doing? And yeah, I would have wanted me on those calls because I was communicating with the parents. I was letting them know everything that was going on. I was doing mm -hmm. everything humanly possible to save their child. I was taking that burden off their plate in their worst day of their life. Mm -hmm. And that was something. And 
And I realized that I had been focusing on all the wrong things. I'd been focusing on all the things I couldn't control, all the ways I was powerless, instead of focusing on all the things I was doing that I could control. That was a game changer for me. I never had any, any mental health issues after that. And, and after that, it just felt like, like every call, same type of call, made me a better version of myself because I understood exactly how I was providing value on those calls. I understood all the ways I can improve. I understood uh, what the parents were receiving from me and how I could even make that even better um, in, in the future. And uh, that, that was an eye-opening thing. So, you know, th this, is a, th this is like, we're, we're almost in a crisis and, and it's not just in my profession, but it's society-wide, this victim mm -hmm. narrative, this victim of oppression of looking at every, the world has to change to make me feel comfortable to, to solve my mental health problems to solve my depression my whatever the rest of the world needs to use my pronouns the rest of the world needs to take create a safe space for me the rest of the world needs to do this and it's very disempowering for the individual because it takes all the control away from them when you buy into that narrative yourself you're throwing control away you're making it everyone else the world and you'll never be able to control that but you yourself what you can do for yourself has so much power and so much um, so much potential. It's, it's almost unlimited. I, I feel that, you know, and, and when we have this victim mindset and we buy into it and it's, there's all these vultures out there in culture that benefit from it, from it, whether it's, you know, the, the grief counselors and therapists and the whole victim industrial complex in my profession or the victim industrial complex politically or whatever, there are vultures off there feeding off that and you don't have to give them that energy. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah. sorry. Oh, no stories. Oh my God, that's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. That deserves a book <laughs> to, to point maybe, that out. Maybe. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Wow, that's just an amazing observation. So yeah, it's uh, how can you walk in a way that leaves you empowered, especially when your work is hard, when you face those kind of incredibly um, potentially demoralizing. You've been speaking totally and this might, might not be a surprise to anybody but uh you know you've got the script of the warrior going on here that that can literally go and uh face death face your own death face other people's death and um you know it's a really f super fine line for those warriors that the the disposition can be that you know it's just about suppressing and muscling through i end up working with men that have done that their whole entire life and it does end up being a crash that for some reason everything that they did to get through those hard times just doesn't work anymore all of a sudden there's you know and i'm not saying that's yeah. what you're doing it's more that's more when they were they were just like suppress at all cost don't feel that fear don't yeah. feel that anger don't let any of that stuff get in your way, just muscle forward. And, and, it's, and it's good for a time. It works for a time, but there, it seems like there always comes that moment where either the relationship falls apart or there's a car accident or there's some kind of a health crisis that makes them go, okay, there's like, you know, I got this far, but there's something new, there's something more. And uh, it's a totally new life when, when you can act with that, that sense of empowerment and, and um, mastery with your inner world. So, wow, that's really amazing. Thank you for sharing all of that. Yeah, well, thank you, thank you for giving me the opportunity. I, you know, it's, it's a very important subject. And um, 
you know, again, it, and it, it comes down to, you know, th then it's like, okay, when you have this realization of this victim narrative and, you know, all, all these things that are contributing to these problems you see around you, I, you know, I think the warrior in me wants to fight that head on and call it out and say, this mm -hmm. is, and, you know, confront that. Um, and what I've learned is, again, that is almost flipping back into that, that old mindset of those people peddling that narrative have to change before anything else can change, right? Well, that's not true. That, that, that wasn't true for me. Right. I, I regained my sanity and my power by recognizing something, by having help too, also having a therapist, having someone, having mentors, having those old veterans uh, talk to me and give me some of their wisdom. Um, you know, I, I've had the, the, the amazing uh, opportunity of having all these great positive male mentors around me in the fire service um, that, that taught me really how to be a, a good man. But a lot of people don't have that. And, and, and so rather than for facing these ideas and pushing back on them and saying you're wrong, what I've realized is more effective is connecting one-on-one -on -one with people that are open to it and having them, helping them develop the tools to disabuse this narrative in themselves, to be resistant to it. On one hand, you could be upset about the mainstream media pushing propaganda all the time and say, well, what we need is a change in government and massive sweeping reforms. And yes, that would be nice, but there's no such magic that makes that happen. But what we can do is make ourselves, first of all, immune to that propaganda because we've all bought it and we're all still buying it to some extent. There's always a narrative that confirms our bias that needs to be checked. And we have to constantly go through the process of checking our own assumptions and our own biases. Um, and, and once we become better at that, we can help others do that and we can help them uh, find their own personal power. And, and then all that other stuff on the outside doesn't really matter. All those problems start to fall away and become ineffective. Uh, when, when we have those tools. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wonderful. I, I can't stop thinking also about that when you went in after that uh, intense trial by fire and your uh, colleague was making jokes about barbecued ribs and stuff like that. And it, it, it hit me that that's, that's a very high energy way to harmonize with that situation. And and then what your colleagues did to like, you know, it's all sort of like shame and everybody's got to be morose and in sorrow. That's a very low energy way to harmonize. They're both harmonizing with the situation, but, yeah. but one is going to leave you with, you know, high energy. It's just, it's easier to get higher from there. Yeah. Low, low energy is tends to self-perpetuate and just become a, a vacuum of. Sorry, you're just frozen there for a sec. Oh, oh yeah. There. Can you hear me now? Can you uh, still hear me, Tim? Yeah, you're coming back. Yeah, yeah. I can hear you now. Yeah, you're coming okay. back now. Okay, yeah. very good. Sorry, so you so, were saying, yeah, one, one way is high energy, the other way is, is low energy. Low energy tends to self-perpetuate. Higher energy is already yeah. traveling up. So even if it's energy you don't want, like lust or anger or pride, it's still way way easier to work with because it's its trajectory is up towards courage acceptance peace and uh ultimate freedom so that's uh the humor humor is like is super high right like that's to me actually the highest way to harmonize yeah. with your environment 
It's because it's not looking away from it. It's, it's, it's like digesting it and then, and then putting out something that's, um, it's actually enlightening, right? When, when you have those moments because they're, they're, uh, they're an unconscious interrupter. You're not expecting it. It, It's, it's enlightening when someone makes fun of the worst thing. It is. Yeah. And it's needed. I mean, I needed to be interrupted. You know, I'm sitting in that truck on the way back from that serious call. I was like in my own head thinking, Oh my God, how am I supposed to deal with this? Is this normal? What, uh, like, am I supposed to be feeling sad now? Am I supposed to, and then all of a sudden that joke cuts through it and just shocks me out of it, disrupts me. And it's like, Holy crap. Okay. Whoa. Okay. These guys are there's, they got something that I want right now. They, they have a way of looking at this that I admire. Mm-hmm. Um, they're able to, it, they just seem very competent at dealing with these horrendous situations. And I wanted mm-hmm. to have that in myself. And, mm-hmm. and so they, they taught me some valuable lessons. And of course, now it's, you have to be very careful with that kind of bringing that kind of energy into our environment because we have HR, progressive HR policies and all these things that, you know, you can't high five after a serious call like that. You can't talk about it too enthusiastically about the positive things you did because someone might have been affected and you know, they, they might be triggered by the way your, your cavalier attitude or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, we can't whole... put our, our probationary mm-hmm. fighter firefighters through the same types of right, right, rights of passage, right? It used to be like, you had to prove yourself. You had to, we would put you under some stress. We do a little bit of light hazing or, make you feel a little bit of psychological discomfort by, you know, or, or whatever, and to see mm-hmm. how you would respond. And mm-hmm. then if you were started responding badly, we'd take you aside, maybe an officer would say, Hey, listen, this is what the guys are doing. They're seeing if they can trust you. They have to know that, that you have their back in a stressful situation. So this is their way of seeing, saying, can they trust you? Are you going to be able to handle that? Are you going to be able to face that? So here's how you can have, so you would get a little bit of coaching and how to deal with that then. And you, and some guys would wash out. They, they wouldn't be able to deal with the, the ribbing or whatever that they, you get during that first year. But man, when you got through that, you felt great. And so those kinds of things like the rites of passage and the, the um, you know, the, the way that we naturally behave, I believe, as men, um, that there's a, a rational reason behind that and, and it's useful and it, it helped construct, I believe, Western civilization. But that, that energy, that, that type of behavior is being pathologized and demonized and um, in a, it's being labeled as inappropriate. And so, you know, that kind of stuff is starting to leave my profession now, which is a shame. So now, you know, but here's the, the, the again, bringing back, it back to, I guess, that warrior mentality is, okay, let's assume that the worst case scenario is true, that everything's gone to hell in a handbasket, that I can't do this, that I have to be careful. There are things within my control still, no matter what the situation on my dying breath, I will believe that there is something within my control right now, whether it's the thought in my head or whatever, there are ways I can manifest. And that has served me well, that has um, allowed me to advance and, and progress and get promoted in every organization I have been in beyond my peers who stuck are stuck down in this herd mentality of feeling like victims of, you know, being morose and, and all this, I see it everywhere now. And it's so easy for a guy uh, to, to just not have that attitude, have an attitude of empowerment of, of the world owes me nothing. And I'm going to have to prove myself and 
take everything as a challenge, um, be that happy warrior. I mean, it, it, you just have to have a little bit of that and you can so easily separate yourself from the herd and get these amazing opportunities. So in one sense, the way I look at it now is that all these low energy betas that are whining about everything all the time and see themselves as victim are allowing me and others like me to stand out from the pack. And it feels like almost too easy um, for, for me now, but uh, you know, so anyways. I love it. I love it. I feel like we're going to probably have to do more interviews than this. There's so yeah. many subjects we could drill down into. Uh, if you have time for one more question, I'd love to return back to the gender sure. thing and uh, the state of men and women on, on the earth today. And, um, you know, the, the transgenderism we already touched on, the denatured um, state of human sexuality, the, the public state of human sexuality, that something that was really in, intimate and private has become mm. so public. Uh, the rise of pedophilia, yeah. trying to convince us that that's some normal, natural gender thing. Um, what's your take on all of this? Do you, do you take a stand on it? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'm really trying to wrap my head around it right now, to be honest with you. I, I'm not sure what the claims are. And I, I think that's part of the part of the strategy, perhaps, by, by people uh, promoting this stuff is, is to keep everyone constantly confused so that we have no idea what they're talking about. I don't mm -hmm. think they know what they're talking about half the time either. Um, yeah. But, you know, here is my, my take on this. There, there are uh, masculine and feminine um, energies there, you know, the left and the right to me embody at, at their core, masculine and feminine. You know, if you think about what, someone on the left might be traditionally concerned about. They're, they're concerned about things that a traditional mom might be concerned about, you know, encouraging sharing, nurturing the least of these, um, caretaking the family environment. And I think if you look at, at what a lot of leftists start with, you know, there are those concerns at their heart. And, you know, of course, those concerns are very, th th then you attach ideology to that and it becomes dangerous. Of course, like, you know, it's easy to see how socialism would be attractive to someone who thinks sharing and, and nurturing and all that kind of thing are, are great. Um, on, on the other hand, you have the right and the right is, you know, like a traditional dad, they're vigilant about external threats. They are uh, boundary enforcers. That's where your mom starts and you stop, mister. You don't cross that line. Uh, they're, they're focused on gathering resources for the family. And so, you know, you see your, your left and your right politically. Now in the family, in a properly integrated family unit, um, those are complementary energies. Uh, you need both of those. You need people focused in both those areas. Someone needs to bring resources into the family. Someone needs to protect the family. Someone needs to enforce boundaries. And someone also needs to do the nurturing and encouraging the sharing and caretaking, making everything nice and looking after that family when they're in that safe space that, that dad creates. Um, the, they're very complementary and, and we need that at all levels of society. But, you know, it's no coincidence, I don't think, that you see increasing rates of divorce at the same time you see men's rights activists at the throats of uh you know third wave feminists at the same time you see hyper-partisan divides between the left and the right and this you know we, we become enemies of each other and and to me a large part of that has to do with our 
our desire for a large government or a large state, you know, because the state creates a zero sum game. You know, one of us is holding the other, the gun and the other person is looking down the barrel of it. And so I don't want to be looking down the barrel of the gun. So I'm going to grab that gun and point it. So we have to become enemies in that system. And the bigger government gets, the more divided predictably and inevitably men and women become unless we are careful. And so, you know, to me, the root cause is this outsourcing of our personal responsibility to this, this non-corporeal entity called the state. And, and then that, that energy coming back at us in the way of guns, very real threats of force. And, you know, so, so it's a self-perpetuating cycle that we have to disrupt. Now, now we have, okay, we've got the state that has replaced the, the father or the, the male's role in society. You know, it used to be that, you know, the man would provide the woman with resources and you needed that committed pair bonded thing um, to make that happen. So a, a female was very interested in having a quality male. A male was very interested in having a quality female who wasn't going to be a philanderer, who was going to be committed to raising his children and vice versa. And it worked well, but now you have the state enter the picture. You no longer need males as a direct resource provider. Now they're essentially relegated to be a resource object um, to the state and the state is our ultimate kind of provider. Um, and so now we have this, and then you add into that things like that make things a bit confusing, like birth control. Um, and, you know, now sex is, is less about procreation and more about, uh, enjoyment. Uh, but you have all these people along the line and, and we have women being told they need to be more masculine. They need to go out there and hunt for their food. They need to get, be gatherers. They need to be more like men, get into the workplace and do all these traditional male things. At the same time, we're telling males they, they need to do less of that. So we have all this confusion about what men and women should do and what masculine and feminine is. So to me, it's no wonder that there's all this confusion people have about gender, right? And they, now they've separated you know, gender and sex. And so we're supposed to think of sex as the biology and gender as um, some kind of cultural construct or, or what we think about the biology. And, and it's become almost meaningless, right? You know, the only way that gender makes sense to me is what, I, what sex I most identify with. So it has to always be correlated to sex or it makes no, no difference, even if, you know, so, so, you know, a transgender per person like five years ago, you would say, okay, they, they're uh, a woman trapped in a man's body or something, or just they, they have so many feminine qualities that they just feel so uncomfortable in their skin that they want to become female, but they're trapped in this man's body. Okay, I can get behind that, perhaps I can, I can see how that could happen. I mean, you know, I've certainly had gay friends, and there, there's something different about their wiring, they were born differently for whatever reason. Um, and uh, it's easy for me to see, well, that, that could be happening to these people as well. But now, you know, the, the, the gender ideology is gone to the point where it destroys the very foundation of what these transgender people are trying to accomplish, which is they're trying to become one sex or the other, that the one that they identify most with. And now we're told that, well, that is completely meaningless, meaningless and arbitrary. You, you can have a female penis and a male vagina now, right? Um, and, and so now my question is to these people is, well, how, how, would I, how do I figure out what gender I am now? Like, what, what is that? What does gender even mean? And how do I know whether I'm one gender or not or another? Like, how would I figure that out? 
Um, and I can never get a straight answer from these people. And, and, you know, mm -hmm. I had this Cause there isn't one. Yeah, there, I, I don't think there is. And I think it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of purposely meant to create confusion. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's, um, yeah, it, it's strange, but I, I think a big part of this again, and the reason why we're so susceptible to it is because we, society has changed. There, there is a difference, right? Um, whether that's permanent or not, I don't know. And whether we need to figure out what it is to be a man and what it is to be a woman, is it different now that we've come out of the stone age and we no longer maybe need those pair bonds? You know, I, I think we still do. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we can, we can find that. But I, I think all this gender confusion, again, is a predictable result of, of statism, of this idea we have in our heads that we need to outsource responsibility that we're powerless in our own lives. We outsource all this to, to vultures and parasites who will gladly profit and enrich themselves and grow in power um, to keep us small. And, um, and in return, um, th they create division and all these other things. We happily buy into that. So I don't even look at the, at the Jeffrey Epstein's and the pedo politicians as the main root of the problem. The main root of the problem is staring me in the face when I look in the mirror and it's staring my neighbor in the face when they look in the mirror. It's our willingness to outsource our personal responsibility and our control to these people. And we do it constantly and we have to check ourselves constantly. I have to check myself constantly to make sure that I have complete ownership, extreme ownership over everything I do. Just like you said, someone rams into me, that's my responsibility. What could I have done differently? What will I do differently in the future? I'm not going to focus on the guy who hit me. I don't care about him. Like he, I can't control him. There's nothing I can do about his life, but I can do something about my life. And I'm going to focus on that. Having that mindset is what protects us from all this stuff, in my opinion. Amazing. Such an incredibly important message for people to hear. So I'm so glad you articulated it that clearly for us. Yeah. yeah, it's it's uh, another big subject, but I appreciate what you shared. It's, I I share I share your perspective on it, and uh, I I was giving another interview yesterday, or um, doing another interview, and just really thought of how it's it's given to us by the state ultimately as as a choice. Like here's 29 different versions of this so-called thing, you know, fictitious gender, and and here you choose, and yet it's. Right. At the same time, the state is revoking all kinds of like real choices about uh, how to be, how to eat, how to what you know when it, when you breathe in the air and what comes into your body, your lungs, all of those like real choices and freedoms that have been just one by one pulled out from underneath us, and then we're given this big fiction like bring here's all these things you could supposedly be, but ultimately just creates confusion and misdirection. So, uh, yeah. yeah, and it's curious too. you know, the other thing I was thinking about the other day is trying to figure out, well, why is it that uh, transgenderism is is a thing, but transracialism isn't right? Like, it seems to me that you could make a better case for transracialism. <laughs> you, you know, like, it's very like, sex, at least is a pretty much a biological binary. I mean, there's intersex, and there's there's some exceptions. It's a natural to the norm. law. But it's, it's pretty much law. it's pretty much a natural law. Like, but race, on the other hand, I mean, it's kind of mushy, right? Like, was Barack Obama black or white? He had a white, white parent and a black parent. 
he's 50 mm-hmm. 50. So, mm-hmm. okay, well, you could either side could probably claim them, you know, and, and it's like figuring out where one race starts and another one begins, you could kind of shift that line and, and it's kind of arbitrary a little bit the way we conceive of where that line is. But gender, but sex isn't like that at all. It's just black or white. It's one or the other, right? It's binary. But this is mm-hmm. like, you know, so why couldn't a Rachel Dolezal identify as black and, and claim that? So, you know, but yeah, that is like, that is a mortal sin by the progressives right now. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe, you know, the best I could come up with is, is that uh, right now these visible minorities are, are useful tools for the progressives. They look at them as pawns that they can play and say oppressed person, oppressed person, oppressed person. You can tell by their skin color, they're oppressed. You can tell by their gender, their, you know, whatever they're oppressed. And we can put those in category. If you take that away from us, we can no longer call them oppressed or something. Like if anyone can be that now we've, we've just eliminated a, uh, a category of oppression, let's say that's the best I could come up with. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, anyways, it was, it was just kind of a, a thought I was having lately. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. So good. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It's been uh, an incredible pleasure. I knew it was going to be good, but uh, I didn't know how good. <laughs> so yeah, great. Well, I, I appreciate it. It was a great conversation. Awesome. For those of you out there who are interested in leadership, either stepping into that or surviving it, um, you know, if you're curious about your purpose, why you came to this earth in this first place, and you don't want to necessarily have to do the trial by fire or nearly get sick and die like I did to begin studying that inward journey. Um, I'm here for you and I have a number of ways that you can get familiar with my work. You can start by taking an archetype quiz, either the King Heroes Journey Archetype uh, or the Merpreneur's Journey Archetype Quiz is at my website. And in seven to 10 minutes, you can find out where on the path of purpose you are at this point see what your strengths are, what your shadows are, where you would lose energy, and get a sense of right away where on that path you are, because there's lots of paths, as, as you mentioned, Tim, we can follow that are unconsciously laid in front of us, and they don't lead to where we're told they're going to. And this is a map of archetypes to find lost purpose. I'm just in the process of publishing my book on it. It should be available any second, maybe even by the time the interview is out. And if you would like to get that book, please do visit my website, bethmartins.com and click the Buy Beth's Book button. So feel free to drop me a line. I'd love to hear any feedback about this interview, anything that it sparked you with in your imagination or maybe compelled you to do in your own life. That'd be amazing feedback. Tim, how do people reach you if they want to connect and uh, engage with you? Yeah, well, on Twitter, I am uh, at Moen underscore Tim. You can uh, just find my name on on Facebook, and and I'm usually pretty good at responding to messages on there. And uh, you know, you can. Uh, I have a uh, an email list that I'm building because I'm working on a, a masculinity project. Um, you know, geared towards younger men, helping them. You know, because I've noticed that a lot of younger men haven't had the the benefit that I've had of having a, a positive, positive male role models around them, teaching them how to uh, address psychologically stressful situations, how to build their body up to be a stronger, more powerful vehicle, um, you know, how to deal competently with, with different situations, how to get that promotion, how to go after things in life, how to, how to show up for 
women romantically and different things like that. And so, uh, you know, if, if you're fit in that category of someone who's just looking for a little help, um, you can sign up for my mail list and then you'll be notified of when that project drops and maybe you can be one of the first kind of beta testers of it to see if it's valuable. Help me out. Uh, you can go to timmoen.ca and sign up for that uh, mail list. Amazing. That's a great opportunity. I'll definitely put the link to that in the notes below. Great. And uh, thank you very much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Check out there are a number of uh, additional King Hero podcasts on YouTube and they're being uploaded to my Anchor FM as well, Spotify and iTunes. So you'll be able to find them all there eventually. Beautiful. <laughs> get my kid, get my, hiring my kid for this project. Get awesome. it all up there. <laughs> thank you very much for joining me, Tim. And uh, everyone have a beautiful rest of your day. Okay, thank you so much. Bye for now. Awesome. Bye. It takes a lot of love.